Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good, good. Hey, before we dive into Galatians 3, I want to walk through just a couple uh, maybe obvious things, but just call attention to them. Uh, on each wing, you might notice that three rows of pews disappeared and have been replaced by three rows of chairs. And just a heads up, that's a process that's going to continue throughout the worship center as we continue to swap out pews with chairs. And let me, let me tell you why, right? That's always an important question, why? So there's kind of three core reasons behind this. Uh, the first is we live in an age, and I don't even want to say the words, but social distancing, right? We, we've heard that. We've heard that. Uh, but the chairs allow us the flexibility to space out a little bit different without having to rope off pews. So it creates a little bit more of a welcoming environment. Uh, but the key word there is, is flexibility. Um, throughout the week, we have thousands of square feet of space in this room uh, that are largely unusable. So in having chairs that allows us the flexibility, if we need to, to move them out of the way, uh, to bring in tables, we could do seminars, conferences. And so actually this fall, our student ministries, mid-high and senior high, are going to have their worship service combined in here, which gives us space in the activity center, where they normally meet, uh, to launch into some preteen ministry. So fourth and fifth graders, uh, they're going to have some breakout space where they get some teaching that's directed specifically at them. Uh, but in order to do that, we needed additional usable space. And so that flexibility allows us to do that, which creates opportunities for discipleship. And discipleship is all about pointing people to Jesus. And so our question was, how can we utilize this space in a way that allows us to be better stewards of the amazing facility that God has blessed us with? So as you see those changes roll out... Um, Find a comfy chair, find your new spot, and it's going to be good, right? All right. We ready for Galatians 3? All right, let's do it. Um, as we launch into Galatians 3, let me tell you about the story of a man named Juan Puyols. Now, Juan Puyols was born into a family of, of modest means uh, in 1912 in Spain. Now, Juan Puyols, he seemed to have this gift of, of fitting in. He, he's the kind of person that could walk into any room and you would probably, uh, as I tell you his story, I think this would be apparent, he's the kind of person that you would probably just find yourself charmed by. You, you would probably walk out of the room going, man, Mr. Puyol's that guy. He's great. He, he had this uncanny ability to fit in in any scenario, in any situation, and, and his life story bears this out. He was born in 1912. In, 19, in the 1930s, uh, early 31, 32, uh, there was the Spanish Civil War. Now, Juan Puyols was a reluctant fighter in the Spanish Civil War who claimed to have fought on both sides of the Civil War in Spain. And he claimed that he did so without firing a single shot. Now, whether or not that's true, that's contested by historians, but it's indicative of Juan Puyol's ability to sort of blend in and fit in. He could be whoever you wanted him to be to be socially accepted. But perhaps his greatest demonstration of his ability to fit in uh, came into play during World War II. Uh, Nazi Germany had conquered uh, large patches of Europe. France had just fallen. And, and for all intents and purposes, Nazi Germany had significant influence in Spain. So Juan Puyols, he's already a reluctant soldier in the Civil War. He doesn't want to get involved in another war in the front lines. And so he does what he thinks he can offer. And he calls up British intelligence, as one does, right? Like, I don't know how you get that phone number, but apparently he found it. He calls up British intelligence and he offers his service to them. And they're reluctant. They're like, ah, oh, we're not sure. Finally, he convinces them to work for British intelligence, like a James Bond kind of scenario. So as soon as they accept him, he turns around and makes the next logical phone call, which is Nazi Germany. 
And he tells the Nazi high command that he is a uh, Spanish uh, official in the government. Now, I don't know if, if they just weren't that bright or what was going on, but somehow Juan Puyol's this man born into an ordinary family of modest means convinced the Nazi high command that he was in fact a government official. And so what they said is they, they told Mr. Puyols, they said, what we want you to do is to move to London and report allied troop commandments back to us. Now, Juan had no intention of actually working for Nazi Germany. He was functioning as a double agent. So he's in uh, Spain, but instead of going to London, he moves to Lisbon, Portugal. Now, in Portugal, he proceeds to make up 27 fake field agents. They don't exist. And he then proceeds to make fake correspondence and letters. And now Nazi Germany is convinced that Juan Puyols is a government official living in London. In fact, he's living by himself in Lisbon, Portugal, with no field agents under his command. They have no idea. And, and in fact, he's never been to London, England, but he has to write these reports for uh, German intelligence as if he's in London. And so in order to do that, he bought some magazines that were based in uh, England and he bought uh, a British uh, army field manual and he attempted to write these reports as if he was in London. And historians would later say he got all kinds of facts about London wrong, but Nazi Germany didn't know any better. And so they think they have the super high up uh, spy in British intelligence. And so this all comes into play in uh, the invasion of Normandy on D-Day. Juan Puyols is feeding troop uh, movements back to Nazi Germany, and, and Hitler begins to get word that maybe something is happening around Normandy. And Juan Puyols jumps in and he goes, no, my field agents, mind you, that he created, uh, all figments of his imagination, he goes, no, 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 my field agents are telling me the actual invasion is going to happen in Calais farther to the north. Normandy is just a diversion. And you know the story of history. Uh, the Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy and established a beachhead which led to the pushing back of the Nazi forces in Germany. But it's largely in thanks to Juan Puyols, his nickname, codename was Garbo, who concocted this entire story that led the Nazi high command to pull tanks off the front line to defend an invasion that was never going to happen. All because Juan Puyols had this uncanny ability to fit in in any situation that he was in. He could behave in such a way that was convincing that he was who he said he was. So he could go to British intelligence and convince them that he had what it took to be a spy, even though he'd never been a spy. And then he turned around and had the ability to convince Nazi high command that he was in fact working for their side when he wasn't. He had the uncanny ability to fit in. And what I want to suggest to you is what Juan Puyols was able to do so easily to fit in, to, to cater his behavior to what would be socially accepted in that situation, what he was able to do in a very natural way is something I think we wrestle with often in our lives. I think for a lot of us, we spend significant amounts of our time and energy in life attempting to fit in in the social situations that we're in. But I want to suggest to you, while we spend time and energy trying to fit in, what we're really searching for is belonging. You see, fitting in is a place where we engage in a way in which is socially acceptable and people say, oh yes, you're included. Belonging is something deeper. Belonging is about being in a community where people love you and accept you for who you are, for who God has created you to be, and who call you to live further into the gospel, good truth of Jesus Christ. You see, fitting in is all about, can I become who people want me to be? Belonging is all about living in the truth of who God has called us to be in a community of love and acceptance. Do you see the difference? 
And the reason I tell you this is because this is, in a lot of ways, the core tension that the Apostle Paul is wrestling with in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, he's written this letter to a church that believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their lives were fundamentally changed. The problem is that there's this group of people who have crept into the church in Galatia. Paul calls them Judaizers. And what he means by this is that these are likely Jewish Christians who have come into the church. And what they want to tell the believers in the church of Galatia is this. They're telling them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not enough, that they also need to fulfill the law. And, and the question that the believers in Galatia are really wrestling with is, is how do we know that we're in? How do we know that we're really a part of this community? And what Paul has been teaching them is, is Jesus Christ is enough. Put your faith in him, believe in the true gospel, and, and, and that's all you need to be initiated into this body of believers. The Judaizers are saying, no, 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 you don't belong yet. You don't fit in yet. What you need to do is also uphold the Jewish law. And so the core tension and question that Paul is wrestling with is this. Do we walk in fellowship with God by faith or through the law? Which is it? Because Paul has preached that it's by grace through faith. And now this other group is coming in and they're saying, oh, no, 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 you also have to uphold the law. And with that, we look at Galatians chapter three, beginning in verse one. And I love how subtly Paul begins this chapter. Let me read this for you. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on, the, on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Don't you love Paul's passion there? Can you, can you imagine if I started my sermon the way that Paul started this chapter? Like, like if I came up here and I said, you foolish Brookings people, who's bewitched you? I'd see some nudges and like, wow, pastor didn't get much sleep or woke up on the wrong side of the bed. You, you would think I was crazy. But, but for Paul, this is a rhetorical teaching method that wouldn't have felt as abrasive or as offensive to the, the culture that he's writing to, but he conveys his passion in no uncertain terms. What he wants to tell the church of Galatia, he says, you have been deceived. He says, this gospel message that you were saved by grace through faith, that is the truth. And someone has crept in and they're they corrupting this truth that you've believed from the beginning. 
And so what you see is that for Paul, this is core and fundamental teaching, this idea that the life that we live in Jesus Christ is by grace through faith. Now, the temptation for the people of Galatia, and I think a similar temptation for us, is rather than walking in faith and the empowering of God by his spirit, our temptation is often to attempt to take control of our own spiritual journey. Now, notice how Paul phrases this a couple of different ways. In verse two, he says this. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. This is a rhetorical question. He, he knows the answer and the Galatians should know the answer. He says, did you receive the spirit? This is the presence of God by the works of the law or by believing? Is it because of the works of the law or is it by faith? And then Paul will say this in verse three. He says, after beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by what? By means of the flesh. And so what Paul is telling the Galatians, he says, listen, if you are going to attempt to find right standing with God through the law, that is a work of the flesh. He says, but you know, when you heard the gospel, when you put your faith in Jesus, you received the spirit and you were walking this life of faith empowered by the presence of God. He says, why would you abandon that and attempt to find your righteousness, right living with God through works of the law? He he calls that a work of the flesh. And that idea of the work of the flesh, it's a spiritual disposition that sets aside the power and the grace of Jesus and says, I'm going to try this on my own. And I think for some of us, we we face a similar temptation to take control of our own spiritual journey and to trust our own ability. Now, I I don't think we do this consciously. I I think a lot of it is how we're culturally trained, right? Econ 101, there's no such thing as what? Free lunch, right? That's one of the first things. Econ 101, that that is poured into our head, that we work hard for what we get in America. And, And so I think we have this idea of a performance mentality and we take this work hard ethic, which is not all bad, and we plug it into our faith and we have this same sort of performance driven mentality that says, I need to take control. And I think part of it comes down to this reality that we have a hard time trusting the sufficiency of God's grace. For some of us, it's just simply that we like control. If I'm doing things in my own ability, I am in control. I I can keep things going the way that I want to. I don't have to submit or surrender things to Jesus because I've got my plan. I've got my purpose. It's all down in front of me and I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. And the problem is we give into a similar temptation where we take control of our own faith journey. And again, I think for some of us, this comes down to the reality that we live in a performance culture. We live in a culture where often our worth is tied to our ability to perform. Whether it's uh, convincing everyone that we have it all together as a stay-at-home parent, whether it's convincing everyone as a business owner that, that we are phenomenal leaders and we can get things done, or whether it's your ability to perform well at work and to land that major account, we live in a culture that values performance. And so often what happens in a culture that values performance is we tie and we root our identity to perfectionism. And and you know, one of the main places where I see this playing out is in the world of social media, right? Social media is this great platform where we cultivate the perfect image of ourselves that we want to convey. And actually what social scientists are finding is that in young people, uh, rates of depression and anxiety are increasing, at least in part, because of social media influence. And what they've noticed is this dynamic that when you look on social media, everyone seems to have this picture perfect life. The problem is I know my own brokenness. 
right? So we start to compare the brokenness and the shortcomings in our own life to the seemingly perfect highlight reel that we see on social media. And suddenly there's disparity between, well, they have it all together. Look how fit they are. Look how successful they are. Look at all the toys they own. I don't have any of that. And it creates this level of discontent. And we spend our lives trying to perform and trying to root our identity in things that matter. And and then I think what happens is we attempt to live our life trying to find measures of success. How do I know when I've arrived? How do I know when I'm enough? How do I know when I'm fit enough or have enough stuff or make enough money? What is my measure of success? And I think we then find ourselves living in this life that is performance oriented, trying to do enough and be enough and measure up enough and be successful enough. And then we carry that over often into our faith journey and we live out this life where we are constantly attempting to please God. And we have this performance mentality. And so if I'm praying and reading the Bible enough, maybe God is pleased with me. But if I miss a couple days, maybe God is angry with me. And so we, we often do our spiritual journey living in shame or fear or guilt, trying to carve out this performance-oriented faith. But here's this key question that I want us to wrestle with. As a believer, is your life different because of what you are doing or because of what Jesus has done for you? And the answer to that, right, it's a rhetorical question, is that our lives in Jesus Christ are fundamentally different, not because of our ability to try hard enough. We are fundamentally new and different people because of the grace of Jesus Christ at work in us, transforming us and redeeming us and making us new people. And for Paul, teaching to the church at Galatia, he knows that this is what's at stake. He wants to encourage the church at Galatia not to go after works of the law, not to try to live up to a standard of performance, but to trust the sufficiency of God's grace. But let me break that down for you, right? We don't, we don't live in a culture rooted in the concept of the Mosaic law uh, that's part of the rich history of the people of Israel. So let me break that down for you. In verse 7, Paul says this. He says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, God called this man named Abram and changed his name to Abraham. And what God said is, he says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all nations. In fact, if you notice when I read through this passage at the beginning, what does Paul say? He says that God actually announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. So what we see in God's revelation to Abraham is, is sort of the forefront of the gospel message. He says, Abraham, through you, through your descendants, all people will be blessed. And Abraham believed God, this is verse 6 of Galatians 3, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, righteousness is right living. It means our life aligns with the truth of God's word. And so because Abraham had faith in this word of God that through him all people would be blessed, Abraham was considered someone who was righteous, who was walking in relationship with God as God made this covenant promise with Abraham. Now to be a descendant of Abraham, to be a child of Abraham as Paul uses, means that like Abraham you are walking in righteousness and truth and you are considered to be in, you are considered to be part of the family. Now the problem God made this covenant promise with Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I'm going to bless all nations through you. God is going to bring transformation and redemption and grace through the work of Jesus Christ. The problem is Israel's bad behavior. 
The problem is that if you are going to be the people of God, if you're going to live a righteous life, your ethic, your way of living has to actually align with the truth of God's word. The problem is that Israel, they find themselves stumbling over and over again, falling into patterns and habits and ways of living and being in the world that don't align with God's word. So what happens next is that God gives the law of Moses to help the people of Israel understand which of their ways of living are righteous and which are not. So the law has some some core purposes for the people of Israel. The law does this. It provides a description of right living. So the question is, okay, Abraham is called by God to be set apart in service to God. The question is, what does that mean? How, How does one set their life apart in service to God? Well, the law of Moses describes, here's what right living looks like. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Here's how you should pattern your life. What that means then is that the law reveals sin. The law describes for us a pattern and a way of living that is not what God intended for his people. The law describes for us what a rebellious life looks like. But the law was really put in place for this. It was a guide for a time. In verse 24, I haven't got there yet. We'll read this in a second. But in verse 24, Paul says this. He says, so the law was our guardian. The word there is literally has this connotation of teacher. The law was our teacher until Christ came that we might be made right by faith. So the law was put in charge for a time uh, to guide us towards right living. But the problem was the law uh, reveals sin and creates a problem for us. Because as the law reveals sin, the question is, how do we deal with sin? Now, the people of Israel, they also knew that they could never live up to everything written in the law. I should have brought it, and maybe I'll bring it next hour. I have, it's called the Babylonian Talmud. It is the Jewish oral tradition that's since been written down about the Jewish law. And and I kid you not, the volumes would probably, if they were laid, you know, would probably stand this high. The law is pretty demanding. But for the people of Israel, it was that it was so important to align their life according to God's word that they wanted to be careful that they didn't violate any of it. The problem is that while the law can describe right living, the law cannot empower us to overcome sin. The law can tell you, here's what you should do, here's what you shouldn't do, but the law cannot help us do anything different. So, so let, me, let me compare it this way. The law might be like Ikea furniture instructions. Anybody put together Ikea furniture? Yes? No? Maybe not Ikea. Have, have you bought any press board furniture? Maybe I'm just cheap and I don't buy good furniture. I don't know. But that furniture, you know, you have to put together and it's terrible. Now, here's what I've noticed about the instructions is the instructions describe what the final product looks like. Uh, usually very poorly. And I usually find myself frustrated. Actually, I find Ikea directions raise this problem in my life, right? Lord, help me. Like I can't get this and I get frustrated, right? But Ikea instructions, they describe what the end product should look like. But often I get done and I go, is it supposed to lean 30 degrees to the left? You know, this doesn't seem right. But they describe something, but they don't empower you to put it together. What I want is an Ikea employee to get in my car to come home and put it together for me right? That's helpful. Your instructions with pictures that look like they were drawn by a four-year-old, not helpful, right? So the law functions in a similar way. The law describes what you should and shouldn't do, but the law cannot empower us to do anything differently. So the reality is that we needed Jesus Christ, who, who Paul says he becomes a curse for us, because the problem is that the law, oh, now I did it, is that the law comes with the curse of condemnation, 
because the law describes for us a standard of living that we can never measure up to. So the reality of the law is the curse of condemnation. Here's what you should and shouldn't do. Good luck. And you look at it and you go, I I can never live up to this. But what Paul is trying to tell us is that the law, it's not the law is bad and grace is good. The law served a purpose for a time. The reality is that in Jesus Christ, the law is fulfilled and God is doing a new thing where in the grace of God, in the power of the spirit, God's presence lives within us and he is reforming and reshaping us from the inside out. And so the truth is that faith is the foundation of our freedom and our identity in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul has been pressing in the first five verses of of Galatians 3. He says, did you, receive, uh, um, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? He goes, you have received the Spirit. God's presence is living and residing in you, not because of your ability to measure up to the standard. No, you have the power of God living inside of you because of the work that Jesus Christ has done in your life and because of your response in faith to who Jesus is and what he's done. And so faith is the foundation of our freedom and our identity in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's teaching for the church at Galatia is this. He wants them to respond in faith and walk in the power of the Spirit. And by the way, as you read the rest of Galatians, uh, this idea of walking in the Spirit becomes a key theme. Starting in in verse 3, Paul will mention the Spirit 16 times throughout the rest of Galatians. Part of the culmination of which is Galatians chapter 5, where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, and 23, Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And church, what we believe is that when you respond in faith to Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit of God resides in us. Think about that that the very power and presence of God resides in your life. And so the beauty of the gospel is not that God says, hey, here's here's a list of things you should and shouldn't do. Good luck. No, the beauty of the gospel is that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to deal definitively with the problem of sin and to create in us a new heart empowered by the spirit of God. Listen to the way Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me just read this for you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15, it says this says the Holy Spirit testifies or bears witness about this. He says, this is the covenant, the new promise I will make with them. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Did you catch that phrase that the writer of Hebrews uses? He says that God will write the law on our hearts. And what he means by that is the law ceases to be an external list of do's and don'ts. And because of what Jesus has done, paying the penalty for sin, dying on the cross, providing the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to reside in us, he says that God takes what was the essence of the law and begins to write it on our heart. In other words, God gives us a new heart and he begins to transform and change our will. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Let me just stop there in the fruits of the Spirit. You see, the law of Moses has a lot to say about loving your neighbor, the entire law summed up in a single command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law can describe that. The problem is the law cannot empower me to do that. And so there's moments where you go, man, it's really hard to love this person. I know I should. But we run into our own selfishness. The beauty of life in Jesus Christ is that the Spirit of God resides in us and he begins to form and fashion and shape in us a heart of love. And what's contained in the essence of the law, 
God begins to form and shape in us through the power of his Holy Spirit by his grace. So we become what the law describes because of the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. And so Paul's teaching here, again, is that we respond in faith and walk in the Spirit. And this response of faith, it it involves believing the truth of God as revealed in his word and trusting your life to God's purpose and thus walking in relationship with him. An obedient response of faith says, Jesus, I'm going to submit and surrender my life to you. I'm going to walk in obedience to who you've created me to be. And so for Paul, it really all comes down to being rooted in this life of faith and walking in obedience to the movement of his spirit. So, so let me flesh this out for you quickly. What does a life rooted in faith look like? And how, how, do we, how do we sort of cultivate this? And I think Paul gives us some healthy things. The first is this. I, I want you to think about and remember when you met Jesus. What was that like? If you're a believer, what was that moment like when you met Jesus and you said, I, I want to put my, my trust in him. I, I want to follow him. Because one of the things that Paul does in the first five verses of Galatians 3 is that he encourages the Galatians to remember the truth of their faith. He says, before your very eyes, Christ Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. They saw something. They experienced something. They witnessed something. There was a very real change that happened in their life. And sometimes, church, just in, in, in the course of life, in the routine of busyness, I think sometimes our faith journey, our faith experience gets pushed to the back burner. And what I want to encourage us is remember that moment when Jesus made a fundamental difference in your life. What did you experience? What was that like? What looked different? And as you remember that, I want you to recognize how life with Jesus looks different. And, and Paul gives us three things here about how uh, life with Jesus looks different. Number one, in the first five verses, notice that three times he tells the people of Galatia that they have received the Spirit. Part of how, fundamentally how life with Jesus looks different is that arrival of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And here's how our life should look different. Our life should bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And part of what I want to suggest to you, church, is in the world that we live in, like we, we can see the political divisions, we can see the cultural fractures happening, but church, we should be the people who stand at the forefront of, of a divided culture and live out the fruit of the Spirit. People should look at us and go, what's wrong with those Christians? Why, when everybody else is crazy, why do they have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness? Gentleness! How much of our culture could be transformed if we lived out love and gentleness, peace, patience, kindness, self-control? And we live out that life because it's who we are. Pastor Steve has said this numerous times in this last season. He said, when the pressure's on, what's in you comes out of you. Listen, church, if we are living and walking and abiding by the Spirit, when the pressure's on, the fruit of what the Spirit brings, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, is what should be pressed out of us. Are you all with me this morning? Where are we at? I know the law gets, it's deep. I feel like we've been trudging this morning. You got boots on? But I think church, this is fundamentally important to live out this life in the spirit. The other thing that Paul says is part of how your life looks different with Jesus is you've encountered some stuff, right? In verse four, and and I actually don't like this translation. I've been using the NIV. He says, have you experienced so much in vain? If you're reading the NIV, the footnote says suffered. The ESV actually translate this as suffered. I think that's a better translation. Paul says, have you suffered so much if it was in vain? Now, I think this is encouraging, actually. 
What Paul was telling them is he says, when you gave your life to Jesus, when you responded in faith, you went through some things, you suffered some things. And sometimes when we give our life to Jesus, you encounter family that doesn't understand your your faith journey. You encounter friendships maybe that that fall to the wayside because now you've become a holy roller and they're just not sure how to interact with this new spiritual version of yourself. Sometimes maybe you've lost a job because you became a Christ follower and suddenly you go, I can't do this unethical thing that my job is asking me to do. And sometimes because of our following of Jesus, we suffer some things. But what Paul is encouraging the Galatians to do is he says, think back to that moment of suffering. He said, you had such conviction and you believed it so much that you were willing to suffer things on behalf of Jesus. Paul goes, was that in vain? No, it was because you believed to the depth of your being. And sometimes, church, we go grow complacent in our faith and we just get in the rhythm and routine. Think back to those early, vibrant days of your faith where you were excited and passionate and, and you were in it to the point of even being willing to suffer. That wasn't in vain. That, that wasn't just a passing, passing moment of youthful naivete. It's because you believed it from the heart, from the gut. Finally, life in Jesus looks different because we experience the miraculous. Notice what he says in in verse 5. So he says, so again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? He says, as you have walked with Jesus in faith, you begin to see God do the miraculous among you. And church, what I want us to think about as we think about living a life rooted in faith is where have you seen the miraculous hand of God in your life? And for some of us, we step back and we go, well, I I don't know if I've really seen the miraculous. And I think in that case, that to me is a symptom that so much of what we have attributed to our life, we have attributed to our own power, strength, and ability, not to God's grace. Where have you seen his provision? Where have you seen God come through in ways that you're not quite sure how to explain? It's not because we're that good. It's not because we've got that together. It's because of God's gracious provision. Finally, uh, life rooted in faith. I think we need to rest in the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. Notice what Paul says in verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us, bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Scripture says, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. And so he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, that life with Jesus, that life with God might be given to us. And so what happens is Jesus, Jesus had no sin, But Jesus chose to take on our sin, to die on the cross for us. He died the death of a transgressor, the death that we were meant so that we could know life. He pays the penalty for us. And what Paul says is, trust the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. We don't add anything to it by by working out the law. It's all the sufficiency of his sacrifice. I love the way that Philippians 1, 6 says it. Philippians 1 says, 6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And, and notice what it says, that God started the good work. I, I didn't start it. My ability to respond in faith, even that is a gift of God's grace. And what God starts in you, he will finish. Do you believe that, church? That this work that he began, God doesn't call you to life in him and say, good luck, do your best. No, God calls us to life in, in him and he will bring it to completion and fulfillment. Now contrast that with what's happening in Galatia. Paul says in in verse three, he says, are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit, are you trying to finish, to bring to completion your faith by means of the flesh? I can't do it. I think there's this place for a renewal of coming back to Jesus and saying, God, I've tried to do life. I've tried to do faith in my own strength. I recognize that I need your grace. And so I think we need to trust the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice and resist the temptation to try things in our own strength. And finally, church, I think it's this. 
we need to realize and recognize our new identity. Galatians 3.23 says this. It says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. The law is no longer our teacher guiding us. We have Jesus. So in Christ Jesus, catch this, you are all children of God through faith. For you were all baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And church, here's the fundamental truth that in Jesus, you have a new identity. The question of, of the Christian faith is not about fitting in. Fitting in is all about how do I have the right behaviors. The law describes right behaviors. The truth of Jesus Christ is all about belonging, that you have been adopted by the God of all creation. And he looks at you and he says, you are my son and you are my daughter. There's nothing you need to do. There's nothing you need to perform. Just respond in faith. It's a gift of God's grace. And, and, and by the way, church, this, this is an aside note. Notice how it talks about family language. You all, y'all are part of the family of God, which means we should dwell together in unity as a family. And the dividing walls, Jew, Greek, slave, Gentile, all of those things disappear as we are one in Christ Jesus. And that is not a work of the law. That is a work of God's grace and of redemption and transformation. Let me pray for us this morning. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you that Life in you is not about trying to measure up. It's not about an impossible standard set out for us by the law. But God, life in you is about your grace. It's about the sufficiency of your sacrifice. And God, sometimes it's easy to get caught up in, in a culture of performance to try to do enough and be enough and measure up enough. But God, I pray that we would rest in this reality that you offer us the identity as your sons, as your daughters, as those who belong in your family. And so God, I, I pray for this, this morning for those who are wrestling, maybe with just a deep sense of loneliness who have continually asked, where do I belong? God, let the body of Christ be the place where they experience deep, deep belonging. And God, I pray for anyone here this morning or watching online who maybe they're saying, I've, I've never responded to Jesus. And they are feeling the movement of the spirit right now. God, I pray that this would be a moment where they respond to that nudging of your spirit, where they trust you with their life, where they say, Jesus, I wanna walk with you. And may today be that moment. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.